So in March of 2015, in March of 2015, I gave a, a message that will be very similar uh, to the one that I'm going to give today. And uh, I thought it might be good. Even when I gave the message, I thought to myself, I will probably do this message every couple of years or so. So it's been three years. And so it's the same title as last time, same text. But also, I went to a conference recently at Foothill Bible Church. Some of you were there, attended it. It was called uh, Jesus' Last Days. It was a conference on the Passion Week. And that inspired me as well to, to think about Palm Sunday, which some churches will do a Palm Sunday message every year, just as they do an Easter message, and today is Palm Sunday. We don't do that. Normally, we just you know stay in our text, but I think every couple of years, it's good to come back and, and address this specific day as we're leading up to Good Friday and also Easter. Uh, Palm Sunday marks the start of what is often referred to as, as Tim said, the Passion Week. Why is it called the Passion Week? Well, it depends on who you ask. Some, some say that it's called the Passion Week, meaning the week of Sunday through Sunday, basically, the resurrection, but specifically to Friday, the crucifixion, all the events leading up to that. That it's called the Passion Week because it refers to the love uh, that Christ had and that Jesus displayed and um, led him to the cross and so on and so forth. But, and certainly, Christ did have love and love was motivating him and moving him and love was poured out on the cross. All of that's true. But the word passion, when, when it's referring to the Passion Week, that word is from original Latin word. That means suffering. That means suffering. So maybe you guys saw The Passion of the Christ, 2004 Mel Gibson movie. If you'll remember, that movie primarily dealt with the last 12 hours of Jesus' life, beginning with the Garden of Gethsemane, where uh, he was already suffering as he was looking forward to the events that were about to take place as he would give his life as a ransom for many on that cross and suffer the wrath of his father, wrath that he did not deserve, but wrath that we deserved. So when we talk about the Passion Week, it really is uh, the week that leads up to the great suffering of Jesus Christ, suffering on behalf of sinners, all who would believe in him. But the week begins or opens up with this Sunday, specifically, and that is Palm Sunday. It is the Sunday that Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, and he entered into, he had been to Jerusalem before. But on this particular Sunday, he entered in in a, in a most dramatic and significant way, a unique way. And this entrance into the city of Jerusalem by Jesus and his disciples is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry. It might even be the heading in your Bibles where it talks about Palm Sunday or that day. It might even be titled that, the triumphal entry. Now, Jerusalem, beloved, and I, I probably will tell you things you already know today, hopefully, and maybe some things you don't know, and I probably will uh, say some things that will make you have questions, and I hope to do that, actually, and I hope that you will seek out answers to those questions, because it is impossible to try to bring together all of the information uh, that we should consider in light of this week, and specifically even this day. But I'll uh, do my best to give you a good review. But Jerusalem uh, is not any city. It's not just any city. Psalm 48.2 and Matthew 5.35 both make reference, uh, just, as, just a couple of references, both make reference to Jerusalem as the city of the great king. The city of of the great king, a real city, real geographical location, Jerusalem, the city of the great king. Psalm 48.2 refers to it as Mount Zion, which is a, another way of referring to the city of Jerusalem. In the kingdom of God, that we've talked about even this morning and sung about, in the kingdom of God that is to come, Jerusalem is the city from which Jesus Christ, the King, will rule 
and reign in righteousness over the entire planet as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And I was just trying to think about how to even address this and with the time I have and limited time, but your understanding of the kingdom is critical to your understanding even of the Passion Week, to the life of Christ, to the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, even the return of Christ, understanding the kingdom. And unfortunately, um, many people don't, even many Christians don't. They are limited in their knowledge concerning these things, but I want to encourage you uh, to dive into the scriptures and learn all that you can about the kingdom of God. So important. It's such a, you know, we speak of, let me say this, we speak of heaven often, dying and going to heaven, okay? And just give me a little bit of grace here, but heaven is, when you think of heaven, it's really a, a holding place until the kingdom of God comes. Heaven, okay, Heaven is not the final destination. The kingdom of God is the final destination for the people of God. A real kingdom on a real earth with a real king and a real life in real bodies living out that great life. It's, and so I think... I think because we don't really necessarily always get that or understand that or we're just kind of limited to, you know, Jesus came, he died for me, I believe, I'm saved, and when I die, I'll go to heaven, and yes, that's all true, but, you, but we're still in the middle of this great drama that is unfolding, and the end game is the coming of the kingdom of God to which the people of God will enter into and live under the rule of their great king. And it's more real than the, in the sense of, you know, it's, it's physical. It's a physical kingdom. So the idea, you know, I think of heaven is like, yeah, okay, I'll be in heaven. Yes, of course, that's glorious. I'll be with the Lord. Yes, but the end game is to be back on earth, a new earth, a redeemed earth, and living as we were meant to live in the first place before we messed it up. It will be glorious. It'll be earth now, but on steroids. You know, I mean, like, (laughs) resurrected bodies, glorified bodies, sin is gone, put away, Satan is banished, and we have a perfect king ruling and reigning over us, a perfect government. (laughs) a perfect world, and we will live in that world. We will work in that world. And I just don't think people really see that. And that's, that to me is exciting as opposed to, you know, I go to heaven and what do I do? Yeah, it is kind of, yeah, what do you do? Well, in heaven, you, you know, we're just going to sing. No, in heaven, honestly, heaven is, is where you wait until the, fan, the, the, the plan completely unfolds as God is, has it. So, and, and let me show you something, a few things. Gosh, I'm going to get killed on time, but I don't know how to do this. After his resurrection, but before his ascension, after the resurrection of Christ, but before he now goes back to be with his father, we pick that up in Acts 1-3. He says there, he presented himself alive to them. To them is the apostles, his apostles, after his suffering, his uh, crucifixion, his death. He had presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. So this is after Christ has been resurrected. He now appears to his apostles, demonstrates the reality that he's alive physically. He's alive. He's resurrected. He has not yet returned to the Father, and he appears to them for 40 days before he goes back to the Father. And what does he speak to them, his apostles, for or about? What does he speak to them about for 40 days? What does the Bible say? What does it say? Yeah. That was the subject matter. See, we, I mean, 
we just, it's often that Christians don't even speak of such things. That doesn't, it's not like even in their realm of knowledge. They'll talk about heaven, they'll talk about Jesus maybe, and he's a savior, and all that's good and fantastic. But what did Jesus spend 40 days talking to his apostles about? It was the kingdom of God. And they would want to have heard him speak to them about, because they are living for that kingdom. They understand in a way that we don't necessarily understand. And then listen, after he's done this, for 40 days he's done this. We pick it up in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this is the day of Pentecost. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, now remember, for 40 days, the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, has been instructing them and talking to them about the kingdom of God. So they, they understand, they get it, they're excited, and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That in and of itself is confusing to many people. They're like, what? What's Israel have to do with Christianity? Everything. You don't have Christianity apart from Israel. It's all tied together. It's all part of this massive big plan. Is now the time that because a promise was made to this chosen nation, a nation chosen by God, that he would give them a kingdom, that they would be citizens of that kingdom, and he would give them a righteous king who would rule and reign forever, and this kingdom would have no end. Is now the time? Are you going to do it now? We get it. You are the Lord. You died. You're resurrected. So in the plan of God, because we know ultimately the kingdom must come, is now the time it's going to take place? And he says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He doesn't say, you guys don't understand anything. You're so confused. What kingdom? What are you talking about? We just, you know, when you die, you go to heaven. I don't even know. The kingdom, it's just in your hearts. It's just, you know, there's no real kingdom in Israel. Why are you guys so confused? Israel even has nothing to do with this. Just believe in Jesus. You go to... He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't rebuke them. They get it. They understand. They know. All he does say is it's not for you to know when that's going to take place. But you will receive here. This is what you need to know. You're going to receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, drawing ever increasing circles of influence. Go tell people about me. Go tell people about the king. And he'll come and he'll establish his kingdom. Meanwhile, you go make citizens of that kingdom. Okay? Okay. And remember, beloved, this is a, a, a righteous kingdom, a righteous kingdom. Unlike the kingdoms of the world, this is a perfectly righteous kingdom. You know who can enter into this kingdom? Righteous people. Oops. So I guess there'll be no one in this kingdom. No. The righteous king will provide the righteousness for unrighteous people. He will make a way. He himself will purchase and redeem. He already had at this point on the cross those people who would be part of that kingdom, forgiving them of all their sins, washing them away, and by providing to them, crediting to them his righteousness that they might be able to enter into this kingdom and live with him forever. See, we just don't get it. I don't, I don't think people generally get it or understand the depth of the glories of the kingdom of God. And so he says in verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so now he's ascended. Now, just hold on to that thought. Then in verse 11, it says, Then they, the apostles that were there with Jesus at this moment, returned to Jerusalem. So they're in the area. They returned to Jerusalem because they left from the mount called Olivet. Okay, you see that? They returned to Jerusalem. So here's, I don't have a map, but here's the mount of, it's mount of Olivet, or the mount called Olivet would be the Mount of Olives. 
So it's this ridge, this mountain kind of line. It's this side east of Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem. Here's the temple where all the worship took place and the celebrations that we're going to look at in a moment. And the ridge ran right here. They're here on the Mount of Olives. They return now to Jerusalem. From that place is where Jesus was speaking to them about the kingdom. And from that place, he ascended back to the Father. And from that place, the angel said, he will return again. Okay? You got that? That's all background. Now, um, there's a book I want to recommend. It's called He Will Reign Forever. He Will Reign Forever it is a biblical theology of the kingdom of God from Genesis to Revelation. And I, I just want to say this book is not just for like scholars. Oh, that's just for people who are you know, deep study. No. It's for you, Christian. It's for you, Christian. It's not just for a higher learning person. It's for you, Christian, because it explores all that the Word of God says about the kingdom of God, and God gave it to us in his revelation, the Holy Scriptures, the 66 books, that you might know it. You, Christian, might know it. And I think people, you know, they say, why are you always all wired up and crazy and stuff? Um, I mean, there's multiple reasons, but... It is, it is a great part. It has to do with this right here. I am, I am so blessed to be a citizen of this coming kingdom, and I am so looking forward to this kingdom becoming a reality on earth and my king returning because I know the details. Many of them revealed to us in the scriptures. Those are the ones I know concerning this kingdom. So not just heaven floating around, a real kingdom, beloved, Resurrected, glorified body. Anyway, we're also considering maybe doing a book study in the future. Thomas and I were talking about this, so I'll, I'll share that more with you. Like maybe we would just get together in groups and maybe just read. Not in our growth groups, but just kind of commit to reading through the book and maybe gathering together to discuss it. I can't recommend it to you enough. It'll open, it'll open your eyes in a way that they have not been opened before, I think, to the wonders of Christianity and all that has been accomplished on our behalf. So, geez, Mark 11, 1 through 10. So I'm just going to have to try to work through it quickly and, and uh, probably skip some stuff, but here we go. So now, that's all kind of leading up to, without really a, a, any knowledge of the kingdom of God, then, then these events, Palm Sunday, it, it falls short a little bit. You, you don't really see all the significance that it is, and and the promises that God made concerning the kingdom and concerning a king. You miss it a little bit. Um, but just trying to give you a little bit of information as we now read the passage in Mark 11, 1, where here we record what is called, like I said, the triumphal entry, and we celebrate Palm Sunday. And if you don't know, we'll discover quickly why it's called Palm Sunday. But beginning in verse 1, Now when they drew near the disciples and Jesus, to Jerusalem. They drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethagy and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Here we are again. So we're back at the Mount of Olives. That's why I wanted to show you that. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village. So, you know, you can, when you're on the Mount of Olives, you can see the temple, you can see Jerusalem. It overlooks it, okay? So there they are. They've come up over the crest. They're about to now enter into the city but before they do that, Jesus sent two of his disciples that were with him and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied or a young donkey on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside of the street, and they, un they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. So what's happening now is he's moving his way down towards the entrance of the city, the great city, Jerusalem, the city of the great king. And they brought, uh, and they spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, that's the passage. All four Gospels record this event, along with the rest of the events of the Passion Week, uh, leading up, you know, Good Friday and uh, Resurrection. So, what happened prior to all this? So quickly, because we, you know, we can't cover. But listen, Jesus and his disciples right now, you know, as we look at this picture, they're standing on the Mount of Olives. Now they're making their way down. He's riding on a young donkey. But what has gone on prior to all this event? What leads up? Well, this would be his three and a half year ministry, traveling, as one person puts it, throughout the lands of the Jews and really saturating all of those areas with his claims, with his claims. What claim? Claims of who he is. And who is he? He is the Messiah. He is the promised, God promised, the promised deliverer of Israel, the king, the anointed one that they have been waiting for, that all the prophets have spoken of, that even Genesis, in the book of Genesis, looks forward to who would come and make things right again and be this great king and deliverer and savior. Okay, so he, he would be the divine king. And he would perform many miracles as evidence of that very claim, that he was indeed divine, the Son of God, and the Messiah, who would bring this great kingdom, and with it, healing and righteousness and all all that's related to that. In fact, if you remember in John 20, uh, the Gospel of John that we're reading through, right? You remember, John records a series of miracles, right? We, let me just show you how messed up we are. We often just focus on the miracles, and we just think, we just focus on the miracle and go, Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. Or look how compassionate Jesus was. He was compassionate. But realize that the primary reason for the miracles was to demonstrate the reality of who he was. That was the reason for them. Because if you think about it, Jesus, he would heal, but then he would withdraw and he would stop healing. So he didn't heal every single person in the land. Uh, He would feed the people that were hungry, but he didn't feed everyone who was hungry. He would do specific miracles at a specific time for the purpose of demonstrating who he was. And, and John, if you look uh, in John 20, John tells you, as Tim had, has pointed out before in the reading of this book, uh, in verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So there's many other things that Jesus did, many miracles, many signs, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer, the prophesied one. These are written so that you may see and you're supposed to recognize he is the guy. He is the king of kings. He is the one that God has promised who would bring salvation. And that by believing you may have life in his name. So, Jesus' ministry, but there's also a conflict, right? There's a conflict. This is all prior and leading up to Palm Sunday. There's a conflict between him and the ruling class of Israel, the ruling class, the religious leadership, okay? The Sadducees, the Pharisees, they're in conflict. He's pushing back against them. And so that continues until we get to this place here. And in fact, it becomes so serious that Jesus' ministry begins to change. It becomes less public as we're leading up to this time, more private. He begins to pull away because the religious leadership is looking to get him. They're looking to get him. They don't like him. They're upset with him. This is a religious leadership of Israel. Beyond that, a few weeks before Palm Sunday, a few weeks before this event we just read about in Mark 11, and you'll remember this in the uh, conference because Doug Moody or Doug uh, Bookman pointed this out. 
uh, Jesus did something incredible. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Been dead four days. Four days. Okay? You remember Lazarus? He raised him from the dead. There was a lot of hubbub about that. A lot of people were talking about that. I mean, who does that? Who has that kind of power? No one. No one. And the word got out. People were coming just for the purpose of, uh, people were coming to see him just for the purpose of they wanted to see the guy who raised Lazarus. And they wanted to see Lazarus too. They couldn't believe it. It was unbelievable. So remember, three and a half years or so of ministry, right before this event, he raises Lazarus. There's just a lot of talk, a lot of excitement. People are believing. They're thinking, this is, this is him. This is the Messiah, okay? But the religious leadership, they're pushing back. And I'll, I'll read John eleven forty five. 45. Let me read something to you. So, Lazarus has been raised. And then we pick it up in 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, Mary is Lazarus' sister in this context, and had seen what he did, raising Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees, the religious leadership, and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest, again, this ruling class, the religious leaders, and the Pharisees gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, and said, they're basically the judges of Israel, okay? What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh, whoa, that's terrible. Well, it would have been for them. Because remember, he's, he's in conflict with these guys. So if they believe in him, then they're in jeopardy because he's not agreeing with them and their teachings and their instructions and of the leadership of Israel. Right? They're off, kilter. So he's challenging them and has been along the way. And then he says, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, you've got to understand, they're under Roman rule, okay? They don't rule themselves. Basically, Rome is ruling, but they've allowed the Jews to go ahead and manage themselves, but always under Roman rule. But one thing you must understand under Roman rule is there is only one king, and his name is Caesar. There are no other kings. Don't ever even think about bringing in another king because we will kill him and we'll kill you and we'll kill the family. There is one king and you will pay tribute to him and you will honor him and so on and so forth. But you know what, Jewish people, just for the sake of peace, we'll let you go ahead and rule yourselves. You can do your own thing. But they knew, listen, Jesus is doing all these signs. He just raised this guy four days dead. Oh my goodness. What are we gonna, we can't stop this guy. He's, the crowds are growing larger. There's more excitement. And if we don't stop him, everyone's going to believe in him. And he is making claims to be the Messiah, the king. And if that gets out and Rome hears about it, they may come in and say, what do you people think you're doing? And maybe kill them or at least remove the uh, allowance of self-governance that they've had to this point, the freedom that they had, they'll come down, they'll clamp down hard. And so, you know, they're like, we got to stop this guy. They didn't, believe he was, they didn't believe he was Messiah. They rejected him, and they were frustrated with him anyways because he kept pushing back against them. In John eleven fifty three, 53, then, it says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. John eleven fifty three. They... The chief priests, the Pharisees, the council, the Sanhedrin, the judges, they started making plans. We're going to kill him. We're going to get this guy. Now, remember, this happened a couple weeks prior to Palm Sunday, okay? The only problem they have is the crowds love him, right? They, they're fascinated by him. I mean, he does incredible miracles. He feeds us. He heals us. He raises dead, dead, dead people from the dead. You know, this is no like, yeah, he came back, you know, just down for a little bit. Four days dead. He stinketh. You know, that's the story. He was stinking at that point. You know, they didn't even roll away the stone. Lord, don't roll away the stone. He's going to, there's going to be a bad smell. Yeah. Because it's going to, after that much time, the body's decomposing. So he brought back a decomposing body from the dead. Who does that? Right? So, 
uh, the crowds, the religious leadership just can't step in and get them because they'll be overran by the crowds who he has favor with at this point. Okay, just think about all that's going on as we lead up. This is very, this is, beloved, this is the greatest story ever. And we're right in the middle of, we are right in the middle of it as the people of God. So, by the way, the place that they are, are at the Mount of Olives, as I already told you. They're getting away to make their way down to Jerusalem. Now, check this out. This is so cool. In the future. So, you know, we just say, oh, yeah, he's on the Mount of Olives. So what? So what? It's all part of this incredible grand story. (laughs) So, in the future, when the Lord returns to the earth, he's returning, right? When he returns to the earth at the end of the tribulation period, to rescue the believing remnant of Israel from destruction because all the nations will have come gathered together to ruin her, to kill her. When he comes to now rescue this remnant of believing Jews, okay, because the kingdom was promised to them, but they rejected the king. We'll get to that the first time he came, when he comes, he will come and stand on the Mount of Olives to that very place. That's where he'll stand. How do you know that? Because that's what the scripture tells us. Zechariah 14.4, on that day, and I like this, his feet, not his spirit, right? Not his, you know, he, remember, this is the resurrected one, glorified body. He's got feet. He's got feet. His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Like I told you, here's Jerusalem. Here's the Mount of Olives. Real place, real location. He'll come. He'll stand. And the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward, okay? So we won't look at all that right now because that's speaking of future events. He's gonna, that mount, he's gonna split it. In Israel, it's under siege. He's gonna bring his remnant through this valley and he's gonna deliver them. This is at the end of the tribulation. Oh my goodness, this is, the same, this is the same place that he's now on top of, Mount of Olives. He's, he's getting ready to now enter into Jerusalem. And he says, hey, go get this donkey. Bring back the donkey. I'm going to ride down on this donkey, which we'll get to in a second. Same location, same spot. And remember in Acts 1.11, remember? Let's just go back there for just a second. He's there. He ascends. He told them, they say, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Hey, listen, it's not for you to know these times. This is, what I, this is your responsibility. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, empowering you to be my witnesses. You tell the world about me. I have many of my people spread out. You go tell them about me. My elect, you go tell them about me. And through that proclaiming of that message and through the Spirit, I will draw these men and women unto myself for that kingdom that's coming. I mean, that's basically what's going on. But then Jesus says, bye, and he doesn't say that, but he departs. He goes, because he said, I'm going back to be with the Father. He's just spent 40 days talking about the kingdom. He leaves, and the angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And where were they standing? Where were they at at this moment? Mount of Olives. And he comes back now, as we see in Zechariah, to that very spot, that area, to take care of business. The end of the tribulation concerning the nation of Israel. And I hope that, you know, when I'm saying all this stuff, you're like, what is he talking about? Good. If, that, if that's where you are right now, I have a recommendation for you. <laughs> I hope, I hope my, my heart's desire is that you just don't go, yeah, whatever. I know Jesus. That's good enough. I'm glad. If you do know Jesus, fantastic. But there's so much more. Oh, my goodness. There's so much more. And so I would hope you would desire to know the more about this great Jesus, about this great king. So, uh, so anyway, here's something else that you need to know. 
what is going on right now when they're out? So this, I kind of told you, this is leading up, three and a half year ministry, conflict with the religious leaders. He just heals Lazarus. They're like, man, this guy, we can't stop him. If he keeps doing these things, everyone's going to believe him. If he does, Rome's going to come and take our power positions away. We're going to lose our you know, influence and authority. They'll crush us because he's making claims to be the king. They're going to accept him as king. Rome will have no other kings. Ah, right? What else is going on? It's Passover. It's Passover. So Jesus is coming to celebrate, you know, the Passover. Who cares? What's Passover? Well, once a year, all the Jews would come to Jerusalem. That's what's going on right now. They're all gathering for the Passover that will occur later in the week. But they come in, they're gathering. So there's estimates that a couple million Jews now are in the city. It's packed. People, they're everywhere. And do you remember Passover? Do you remember it? If you don't, you need to learn it. You need to understand it because, again, it's significant. So Passover celebrates God rescuing them from where? Egypt. They were ruling over them, right? They were oppressors. They enslaved them for a very long time. And God comes in in a very miraculous way, right? You can learn, read the story. And he rescues them from this Gentile oppressor. Okay? So every year, you know, he, he's, there's a Passover lamb. They put the blood on the door. And he, you know, I, don't, I can't go out of time for the whole story. But just know this. He rescues them and brings them out. And now they will be the, his people. And he will guide them and follow them. And he gives them the law and so on and so forth. All right. R- Rome did not like this celebration because when they all gathered together, now they're collectively together, their strength, right? And what are they remembering? The removal of our oppressor. So as Doug pointed out in this recent thing, sedition is in the air. It's in the air. They're talking about, we want to get out from under this king, and they are longing for God to release them from the power of Rome who rules over them at this point. So just think about all the pieces, beloved. We have this man named Jesus, three and a half years of ministry, spreading his word, doing incredible signs. The people are getting excited. They're gathered now together here, together to celebrate the Passover. So it puts sedition in their minds, the idea that we don't want this king, we don't want Caesar over us. We want our king to come, the king that God promised us, and deliver us and save us. And here he is. Here he is. This is him. We hope this is him. This is him. This is the one who will rescue us. It's in the air. It's it's so dramatic, the whole thing leading up to this point in history and the events that took place on Sunday. Hmm. Now, the prophecy concerning Jesus' entry into Jerusalem or the city of the great king. Again, you know, the whole donkey thing, right? We would say, why include those specific events? Why those details? Why do, why do we need to know that he rode in on a donkey? Uh, because that was a fulfillment of Scripture concerning the great king, right? So in Matthew, when we look at the other accounts, we looked at Mark, but when we look at the other accounts of Palm Sunday, remember, he tells them, hey, we're up here on the Mount of Olives. All right, guys, before we go in, time out, go into the city, donkey there, colt, young colt, go get it, bring it back. All right, now they put them on it. Now they're making their way down, and the crowds who have been looking for him come out, they're gathered, massive crowds, sedition on their mind. They've heard the stories. Some have witnessed the miracles. And he's riding on a donkey. And you're like, uh. And so Matthew says, 21, for this took place specifically to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king. This is said to the daughter of Zion, the nation of Israel. Your king is coming to you. How? Humble and mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. John's gospel also says this, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, fear not, now they're quoting prophecy, daughter of Zion, behold, your king, Israel's long-awaited promised king is coming. How? Sitting on a donkey's colt, all right? So he rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey, but it was not just an insignificant detail. It was the fulfillment of a prophecy written, by the way, about 500 years prior to Palm Sunday. It was foretelling of the king who would come, the specific king, to his nation. And we see it in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, here's the passage, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, this is the righteous king, and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Okay? Now, in the ancient Near East, if a king came in peace, he would ride on a donkey instead of a war stallion. If he came in peace, he would ride on a donkey. Because, you know, I mean, he's the king, so don't think like donkey. Aw, how sad. He couldn't afford a horse? No. No. He rode on a donkey because, A, it's a fulfillment of Scripture. B, the king doesn't even have to touch the ground, right? He just rides on the donkey. And coming on a war horse or a stallion would definitely communicate something different if he was indeed a king. And I, I don't have time, you know, but look this up later. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. When the Lord comes again at the end of the tribulation again, this time he comes, what does he come on? A white horse. Yes, he does. He comes on a white horse. He comes on a war stallion. He comes on a war stallion, and he brings, he brings his wrath against the unbelieving world, against Satan, against the Antichrist. He brings it. Judgment, destruction. He comes on a war horse. It's interesting. John MacArthur in his study Bible when, if you look it up, he'll say, in the Roman triumphal processions, the victorious general rode his white war horse. Jesus' first coming was on a colt. John's visions portray him as the conqueror on his war horse, coming to destroy the wicked and overthrow the Antichrist and so on and so forth. So now this time he came on a colt. He comes in peace. He comes in peace to his people. He presents himself to them as their Messiah. Fulfilling prophecy, all the signs, everything's leading up to this moment, right? Okay. You with me so far? Wow. So, the path Jesus took, all right? So, we got the prophecy, now we got the path. Uh, look back at the text. They, they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on it, he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road. So, the, so he's walking on the donkey, he's you're not walking, he's sitting on the donkey, and now the crowds have come out to greet him, they're excited, they're thinking, this is him, this is the one that we've been waiting for, and they begin to spread their cloaks on the road, okay? So I'm going to, let's see, Luke records it this way, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So cloaks, they're spreading their 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 clothes out. And one writer says it this way, they unwrapped their loose cloaks from their shoulders and stretched them along the rough path to form a momentary carpet as he approached. And you're like, that's weird. It's not weird. As I said to you before, this is a customary way of greeting royalty. Okay, and so we can see that in 2 Kings 9.13 uh, with King Jehu. In 2 Kings 9.13, it says, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So in the welcoming of this king, it was, uh, it was, like, it was similar to how we say we roll out the red carpet for our you know, stars and stuff like that, of that nature, at the Oscars or whatever. It's a, it's a way of, 
it's a terrible comparison, but it's a, it's a way of uh, honoring, you know. They don't even, so they throw out their clothes. His feet don't even, here he comes on his donkey, riding in. Again, it's a sign of royalty, honoring royalty. So looking back again at Mark 11, they spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Leafy branches, okay? So to this carpet of clothing, one writer adds, they added the further tribute of covering his path with branches of trees. Branches of trees, palm branches. John recorded, identified as palm branches specifically in the Gospel of John. And again, that was a common demonstration in the East, in that culture, to welcome a king, a conqueror, or deliverer. That is where we get the idea or the phrase Palm Sunday. You know, I think, you know, again, just, eh, look at their waving their palms, branches, because they're so happy. Or maybe they're fanning Jesus off because he's hot. No, it's not none of that. They lay them down. It's a sign of, all of it is pointing to who this man is and the recognition of it. He is presenting himself as who he is. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited king, the king of kings, the great king of that city, Jerusalem, the world. Finally, the praise we see uh, in Mark 11, 9, 10. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And as we consider the other three gospels, just listen as I read, as they capture and again, just another view of what was happening on that day in the giving of praise. Listen, Matthew 21, 9, the crowds that went before him and that followed him as he's riding down on the, you know, the pathway, palm branches, clothes, the garments laid out on the donkey, all fulfillment of prophecy. There's excitement. There's tons and tons and tons of Jewish people gathered together here for the Passover. And this is all building up from three and a half years of ministry. And, but remember... The ruling class wants to kill him. The religious leaders, they're looking to get him. But how are they going to get him in the midst of all this mess, right? If they do anything, the crowds will overtake them. But they need to get him before this gets out of hand. And Rome comes in and conquers them and uh, puts them down. But, and the crowds, they went before him. They followed him. were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then in Luke 19, 37 through 38, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. John 12, 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And it is ridiculous, it is ridiculous, but some skeptics, those who refuse to believe the truth, concerning Jesus Christ, concerning the Word of God, concerning the Bible. They've tried to downplay the significance of the praise that Jesus received by pointing out that the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was a common expression offered to the pilgrims or travelers that would regularly come to Jerusalem to celebrate the various religious feasts, as was going on at this time, specifically the Passover. Uh, but I just read to you all four accounts. They didn't just say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? They said a lot of other things as well. And if there's any doubt as to what exactly the people were saying or what they were intending by what they were saying, these great crowds now gathered together as Jesus is coming, if there's any doubt, then we should look to see what some people there thought. And we have that of concerning this praise, Right? Not, you know, someone 2,000 years removed who doesn't believe the Bible and wants to reject Jesus Christ as the great Messiah and comes up with ridiculous ideas for why we shouldn't believe it. Let's go back to what someone who was actually there and ask them. Okay, we can do that. Luke 19, 37. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. All right, so same stuff, all right? But, you know, they're just being nice, right? You know, they're just well, giving them a nice welcome. They don't really think this guy's the Messiah or the king. No, they do, they do. This praise is over the top if he's not the Messiah. In fact, it's inappropriate if he's not the Messiah. And we know that because some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, you remember? These are the guys looking to kill him, right? They're, they've set out a plot. They're going to figure out a way. We got to get this guy. We're not sure how we're going to do it. We got to kill him. We got to kill him now. This is getting out of control. Teacher, these pompous, teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
because as far as they were concerned, right, this was inappropriate. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. (laughs) You know, Jesus doesn't rebuke him, right? The Pharisees understood this to be more than just a typical welcome of a pilgrim making his way into Jerusalem for the Passover. But ultimately, because of their pride, their sinful pride, and their stubborn unbelief, they they rejected Christ and therefore Jesus as the Christ, and they rejected the praise that then was being offered up to Jesus. And so the Pharisees, as, as you just saw, demanded that Jesus forbid the people to give him praise, but Jesus considered the praise to be absolutely fitting. Why? Well, he's either a nut job, as we've said many times before, but we can't accept that anymore because he resurrected from the dead. So that's out. He's not a nut job. We can't, it's not an option. But if he had not done that, then maybe if he had just gone to the cross and was crucified and then put in the grave and was still there, then we could have said, this guy's a nut job, man. He just thought he was something that he wasn't. But you remember, he gets up again out of the grave. That's Easter. That's this coming Sunday, Resurrection Day. So that's not an option. So I guess maybe he's a liar. I don't know, but we can't accept that one either because then God wouldn't have raised him from the dead. No, he's who he says he is. He's Lord. And so he accepts this praise because it's due him. He is the king. He's the great king. Now, I said all that to say this, okay? And the, and the crowds, I'm going to finish, babe, I know. The crowds acknowledge, um, there's just so much. And, you know, I just skipped over tons of stuff, by the way. I want to recommend a book to you. <laughs> I, hope you would, I hope you would get it and take the time to get it. Uh, because I love you, and I want you to know the greatness of our king and the greatness of God's plan that he has made us a part of in a glorious way. My goodness. So listen, the crowds are acknowledging him, right? They're giving him this praise. They're crying out. They're you know, laying down their cloaks, bringing out the palm branches. They're excited. Here comes our king. And they're thinking, here comes deliverance from Rome. Okay? As the week unfolds, though, as you guys know, most of you, I would assume, if not all of you, by the time we get to Friday, the crowds, now that doesn't mean, I, I, I would think, at least the disciples, his disciples that were with him as he's making his way down the Mount of Olives, they believed, they, you know, and there were probably others who sincerely trusted in him and but everyone's kind of like, it's just kind of a big crowd momentum. Yeah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Woo-hoo-hoo! This is the one, this is the one I can't wait. Where's Lazarus? Where is he? I can't, this is the guy, you know, this is him. This is what everyone's been talking about. And here we are and Passover's on our mind and deliverance, deliverance, deliverance. And this is the one, he's coming on a cult. Oh, Zachariah talked about this. Right? But that's Sunday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the Jews, the, specifically the ruling class, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they work out this plan to steal him away in the middle of the night, afraid of the crowds. Mock trial, the legal trial. And they put him before Pilate. And we don't have time to go through all that today, obviously. But Pilate tries to let him go. Pilate, Pilate realizes this guy's innocent. <laughs> I mean, he's not a Jew. Pilate's not a Jew. And, but he's like, hey, you know, the law is the law. This guy's done nothing wrong. What's going on here? He tries to let them go. He tries to offer them up someone else, part of their procedures there, give them a, another person and release Jesus, right? And the crowds now, so we have the crowds on Sunday, King of kings, this is him. Hosanna, Hosanna technically means save us. Save now. He's here. He's going to save us. But on Friday, Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? I mean, he's tried now several times. 
He even whips him and beats him. He's thinking he did that not because he was a, a sadistic man. He did that hoping that would satisfy the Jewish leadership. Like they'd be like, all right, maybe that's enough and then I can let this innocent man go. So I'll scourge him. But they'd have none of that. The crowds now shout back, crucify him and say to him, we have no king but Caesar. Are you serious? So, the question that we're asked, and we were asked in this conference, and I just thought, this is what I want to leave you with, and to, but I want to answer it as well. Given Sunday, what happened Sunday, why Friday? Given Sunday, the crowds, the gatherings, they're all excited, they're all, at least outwardly, they're acknowledging him as who he is, they're giving praise to him. What happened? Now they're shouting for him to be crucified, and they're claiming they have no king but Caesar. They don't even believe that. They know they have a king, right? But it's not him now. It's not him. Kill him. Be done with him. What happened? And the answer is Monday and Tuesday. It's Monday and Tuesday happened. And so to make it very short to you, on Monday and Tuesday, you know, on Sunday, he, when he arrives, he looks at the temple, he comes in and then he leaves. He takes off, he gets back out of town. So all the praise, he just comes in, he comes into the temple, he looks around, that's what we're told. Then he leaves, he gets out of town. He comes back, he cleanses the temple, he rebukes the, the religious leadership. I mean, openly, publicly, he embarrasses them. He's now controlling the temple. This is his father's house. What he does is he now acts as he is. He is Messiah. He is king. He is ruler of this great city. And he walks in and he takes charge. And he begins to not only do that, but on Tuesday, he's rebuking the Pharisees openly, publicly. Okay? So now the people are all praising him. Woohoo! Yeah, yeah! But now they're seeing, no, this is, he draws a line. He draws a line in the sand. All that, all the religious, religious leadership, they're over there. They're not with me. I'm over here. I'm the king. If you want to be with me, you cannot be with them. And beloved, I just want you to think about this. The Pharisees taught a system of salvation by works. That's what they taught. They were the law keepers. And they were even the gatekeepers they were considered into the kingdom of God because they would help you keep the law that God gave. And so they added a ton of other stuff to the law, but they would make sure, they would show you the way that, so that you could keep the law and therefore be considered righteous that you might enter into this righteous kingdom. They were dead wrong. Jesus was rebuking them, but as far as they were concerned, they were right. And the people admired the Pharisees. They had esteem for them. They were the righteous ones. And you could see Jesus rebuking them, but here it's a rebuke in a way that has never been seen in publicly, and you have all the people gathered together. This is a false gospel that they're teaching and preaching, okay? The Pharisees, the religious leadership. And remember, the people were seeking deliverance, but they were at a place spiritually where they didn't think they needed deliverance necessarily from their sin because they had the law for that. They had the Pharisees. They would just do better at keeping the law. They would just make more sacrifices. Their deliverance that they were seeking was just get Rome off our backs. Let us be a nation again. And so the attitude changed. Wednesday, Thursday, it begins to shift. Friday, their mood changed. Where, we've got the Pharisees. I thought, I mean, what are you doing? I thought you were going to come in here and rescue us from Rome. I mean, what's going on? They missed it, beloved. They missed, and, and Chris said it, they missed what their greatest need was. They didn't, they didn't most need salvation from Rome or deliverance from Rome. They most needed salvation from themselves, from their sin. They most needed that deliverer. 
and they missed it and therefore rejected him. So I pray that we don't do those, that uh, if you're here this morning and, you know, because I was just thinking about even contemporary Christianity where people come to Jesus to do, so that he can deliver them from their debt or deliver them from a temporary thing, but they're not even looking for the greatest deliverance and what they really need, their greatest need, which is deliverance from sin, being rescued from their sin debt, right? And even as Christians, beloved, even as Christians who have been rescued from a sin debt, we have a tendency to kind of fall back into this pattern where we don't think maybe we need that Savior anymore, that we need saving from our sin, because if we've been Christians for a while, we start to look better, start to act better through sanctification. But the truth is, from day one for all eternity, we will always need that Savior. We will always need to be relying on Him. We will always need to be looking to Him as our Deliverer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and Lord, do what you will with it, and uh, I pray your blessing uh, on this coming, this coming week, Good Friday service, Resurrection Sunday, Father. Just work through our minds and our hearts to help us see the greatness, the wonder uh, of this week that we refer to as Passion Week. Beloved, I'm going to go ahead and let you go. Uh, make sure you stop at the back to... Uh, Get your book if you haven't, and also turn in your connection card, and I hope to see you on Friday here at 715 for our Good Friday service.